is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello. I've missed you. I've missed you too. How was your summer? It was really nice, actually. We had a really nice break. I've got so much to tell you. Well, go go on. Tell me. My big sort of breakthrough drum roll. That's me slapping my thigh. I don't know if it's quite quite a drum roll. Slap my thigh. Uh, I'm a convert to, to bicycles. I mean, honestly, you, you, you deserve, like, massive credit. Hang, hang on. So you, you, you're talking about two wheels here. There were no stabilisers involved. Two wheels. It, 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 it all started with a sort of an electric, an electric bike hire. Um, so sort of on our way to Italy, we, we, we stopped in a place called Châtel in the French Alps. And, uh, and um, it turns out to be the mountain biking capital of Europe, uh, which wasn't why we went there. But the only thing to do really was to hire a bike, and uh, they had an electric bike, so I thought I'd try it out. And to be fair to you, you'd been wanging on about electric bikes might be the answer for me. I mean, I mean wanging on in the most complimentary way. And uh, you know, you you were right. It's quite it's quite something when you uh, get on an electric bike for the first time. It's like sitting on a wild stallion there's there's quite the jolt when you're not used to it yes i mean it takes some getting used to and and i sort of breaking is a is a sort of is a work in progress because (laughs) you know these were quite sensitive these were quite heavy duty electric bike but i mean it means you can get up a hill anyway but 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 honestly the most amazing thing is which is kind of hard to believe maybe is that when we came back I, i was out there on the electric bikes Hiring my, my, wow. my lime bike and, and then using Justine's uh, pedal bike. What, what about all your fears, as previously discussed, about your own ability to balance, about traffic? I did fall into a cabbage patch uh, at one point, but... but <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's like something out of Last of the Summer Wine. Yeah, yeah, it is, actually. Uh, but, I mean, I, you know, it's a bit scary with traffic, but I've become more sort of used to it you know what i mean i i've become more confident are you using are you using an app to plot out the quietest route well I, the i've become quite you know it's it's will surprise you a lot this but obviously i've become quite obsessive about this now um and so i've i've actually spent an hour online last night looking at the different cycle route you know uh, planners so yes that's the sort of that's the thing. But honestly, I've become, I, I'm just, I, I can't even be, I mean, I, I'm already planning this weekend sort of bike riding. I've become a sort of obsessive bike rider. It's sort of slightly weird. No, that's exactly what happened to me at the beginning of the summer. I'll tell you what, City Mapper, I've found, is as good as any because it gives you the option of having quiet, regular, yes. or fast. So does, there's one called Cycle Streets, I think, which is the main engine, I think. Uh, I don't know if it's the same, maybe it's the same as City Mapper. That also has three options. Well, I'll tell you who's going to be devastated about this. Who? Tricycle manufacturers. I mean, honestly, they've all been queuing up for my sponsorship. (laughs) I've been inundated. But I'm trying to work out now whether I buy an electric or a... An acoustic. Yeah, yeah. But but anyway, tell us about your holiday. Um, Oh, well, my big news is I was stung by a wasp. No! I've managed to live 47 years without being stung by a wasp or a bee. Wow. And then 
I accidentally trod on one by the by the swimming pool in bare feet. In bare feet, yeah. Have you been stung by a wasp or a bee? I can't remember being having been stung by it's it's very easy to imagine you sort of fleeing through a field being pursued by a swarm of bees and trying to swat them off you i mean just talking of nature red in tooth and claw justine and i went for this walk while we were on um in italy and uh we saw and i filmed i hope this isn't going to get me into trouble but i i filmed a snake eating a toad oh i mean no i didn't i didn't create the situation but I mean, I was, I mean, I was part, we were on this walk and I saw this toad and I said, Justine, there's this toad. And she said, why has it got a very long tail? I said, that's not the tail, that's the snake. And then we realised the snake was eating the toad. I wondered if I should, wow. I, I sort of, I was contemplating staging an intervention in order to try and save the toad, but I think it might have been too late. I mean, what 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 are the morals of that? You're there documenting. Well, the exactly. I thought I felt like a, I felt like David Attenborough. Yeah, I was thinking I could throw a stick at the snake, but Justine thought the snake might then attack us, <laughs> <laughs> and she thought that was a bad idea. Again, much like the swarm of bees, this is a situation that is all too easy to imagine unfolding. Exactly. Uh, now, should we talk about what we're talking about? Yes, but before we do, we've actually got a, a clip to play, which I think will we'll set it up nicely. So have a listen to this. I will not be lectured about sexism and misogyny by this man. I will not. And the government will not be lectured about sexism and misogyny by this man. Not now, not ever. The leader of the opposition says that people who hold sexist views and who are misogynists are not appropriate for high office. Well, I hope the Leader of the Opposition has got a piece of paper and he is writing out his resignation. Because if he wants to know what misogyny looks like in modern Australia, he doesn't need a motion in the House of Representatives. He needs a mirror. That's what he needs. Yes. Well, look, we thought we'd sort of come back in with a bang, didn't we? Yeah. Um, And we like having Prime Ministers and former Prime Ministers on this podcast i thought i was going to make some self-deprecating remark about nearly prime ministers and former prime ministers but uh, this week we're talking to former australian prime minister julia gillard who you heard in that clip about women in politics and perhaps it's worth us saying jeff that the then leader of the opposition that julia is talking about is none other than britain's new trade advisor tony abbott Julia has written a fantastic book, which we strongly recommend, with former Nigerian finance minister Ngozi okonjoi Welu about women and leadership. They combine academic research with interviews with eight women politicians, including Hillary Clinton, Theresa May, Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand, Joyce Bander from Malawi, Michelle Bachelet from Chile and others. And Julia's co-author Ngozi leads the Global Vaccine Alliance, and she's in the running to be the new director general of the World Trade Organization. So she wasn't able uh, to come on the show, but we had a great chat with Julia, both about how she got into politics and some of the conclusions from the book. And, and you know, we, we, we often think that we've made a lot of progress in women's representation. But one of the things that comes out in the book is only 57 countries out of the 193 in the UN that have ever had a woman as president or prime minister. That means 70 percent of countries have always been led by a man. So this is a really important conversation. Julia's got some fascinating insights uh, from the politicians that she spoke to uh, and about her own experiences. 
And won't it be nice to have some cause for optimism around a former Australian Prime Minister? Indeed. Indeed. We decided not to interview Tony Abbott. What's your reason to be cheerful? My reason to be cheerful is a book I've just started reading this morning, and it's incredible. It's called The Gospel of Eels. It's by Patrick Svensson. And um, it's sort of part... Uh, non-fiction about eels, which are just incredible creatures. Um, they all come from the Sargasso Sea and they start life as tiny, tiny specks. The currents bring them across the Atlantic Ocean into Northern Europe from where they're slowly transforming. They're about as big as uh, a, a willow leaf at this point. They go from being salt water to fresh water. They go up the rivers. They find somewhere to live in the mud on the bed of rivers and then can live there for 30 50 years and the bit occasions where you know uh, marine biologists or whatever have, have moved them um miles away and within two weeks they go back to this place they've made the home anyway after about 30 or 50 years or however long it is they then decide they want to reproduce and they go back across the atlantic to the sargasso sea where they where they do it how and, extraordinary you know, specs when they get, it's incredible and and that's so part of its personal memoir of this guy and his memories of him and his father fishing for eels but then you know I, I'm, and i'm only sort of three or four chapters in but uh, aristotle was fascinated by eels because at at that stage, there were all these theories about whether they just sprung to life, um, whether whether there were male and female eels. Sigmund Freud, as a young man, before he you know uh, b- yeah. b- became fascinated by yeah. the mind, he was a, a young scientist who was was trying to. There was this prize, basically, the scientific community couldn't find a male eel they'd found uh, a, a female eel by this stage but they, there was no evidence of male reproductive organs so th- th- there were all these questions around eels which have been slowly answered over thousands of years it's brilliant it's it's so good so far it's called the gospel of eels by patrick svensson what's uh, what's your reason to be cheerful my reason to be cheerful is that again it's it's that i should offer thanks to you because uh, two or three days ago i was I, I came out of the house to put some uh, rubbish in the compost, as you do. And there was literally somebody standing there who said, I really love your podcast, I just wanted to say. And I know that you made that possible, Jeff, because you wanted to make to make me feel good about being back in the country. And you, you got her to be there. I did, you know, at great personal cost, because she was there for a long time. <laughs> she was. She, you know, she was. Ch- she charges by the hour, and she, she was hanging around your compost for a long time. I, and she's a, she was, she's a very nice young woman called Anna Barker, who teaches, I think she teaches sort of Greek and Latin in a school. And actually, you know, this is a sort of confession, really. I was so excited about the bicycles situation that I told her all about it. So you weren't really the first to know podcast wise because I felt I should sort of share it with her. And she said, "Well, what happened to the tricycle?" And I said, "Well, you know, I've 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 I've, I've looked elsewhere." It's the question we're all asking, Anna. Reasons to be cheerful: a podcast about ideas with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, our guest today has written a terrific new book. It's called Women in Leadership, Real Lives, Real Lessons, which is co-authored with Ngozi Okonjo-Iweala, who sadly can't be with us uh, because she uh, she has an important uh, uh, task to be getting on with. Maybe more of that later. But we're delighted to say hello to Julia Gillard. Thank you very much. Great to be with you. Well, it, it's it's great to be speaking to you, to hear your voice 
and see your face at the same time on my screen. And I mentioned that because I've spent a bit of time recently trying to get to grips with TikTok, which as a man in his 40s isn't easy. Um, but I have heard your voice a lot recently, but not seen so much of you. Uh, one of your speeches has taken on a life of its own. Well, you're a man in your 40s. I'm a woman in her late 50s. So when I started getting messages from friends that I was on TikTok, I firstly had to work out what TikTok was and how to, how to have a look at it. And then I realised that they'd taken my misogyny speech from 2012, a number of young women in different takes, uh, were mouthing the words of it, miming to it, but with pumping soundtracks um, in the background and uh, all sorts of animation in their face and their bodies. And I was very heartened to see it because they've clearly adopted that speech as a bit of an anthem for young women who know that they still go out in a world where they are at risk of being treated differently just because they're women and they're taking a very upbeat, sassy kind of approach to it. And it is this speech that went viral worldwide, one of the most famous parliamentary speeches. But just just in case there's anybody listening to this who managed to avoid it, can you just give us the context of it? <laughs> yeah, this was a speech I gave in the Australian Parliament in October 2012, and it was a parliamentary day that was going to revolve around sexism. The Speaker of the House of Representatives had been shown to have authored some very sexist text messages. I had supported him to be elected as Speaker before any of this was known, of course, uh, but I knew that it would be a parliamentary day where the opposition would be trying to say I was hypocritical about sexism. So I went into the parliament uh, ready for question time uh, and I took with me some of the leader of the opposition's most noted statements that were sexist in themselves and I sat down expecting question time but instead uh, the leader of the opposition moved a motion of, you know, sort of censure against the government, gave a speech and I in the moment had to respond and it's that speech that's come to be known as the misogyny speech uh, where I... Uh, very much, um, put a strident view about how I had been treated in politics, including by the leader of the opposition, and how offended I was about that. And it's that that I think has continued to speak uh, rather than the parliamentary context that it sprung from. What, what, is, what is your relationship with, with that speech like? Is it like when a band has a very big hit and they eventually grow <laughs> to be sick of it because it kind of defines them? <laughs> uh, well, I've certainly never been uh, tempted to try singing it, though others <laughs> have sung the misogyny speech. There have been various arrangements of that. Um, in some ways, yes, uh, I'm, I'm at peace with it now, but for quite a long time, uh, I did have this feeling of, you know, I was in politics for 15 years, I was a minister, I was deputy prime minister, I was prime minister, and apparently it all telescopes down to one speech and you were, you know, I was always there going, oh, what about, you know, the National Disability Insurance Scheme? What about uh, some of our other big reforms? Um, but now I kind of get it that the speech is going to have this ongoing life. It's very well known internationally. And many of the women who talk to me about it internationally don't know anything about Australian politics except that speech. And so if they're going to know one thing about Australian politics, I'm glad it's that. 
Well, that's it. Then we're done with that. I won't mention it again. Um, we've, we've we've boxed it off. Um, before we go into the book, I think we should spend some time just talking about your political career. Um, what, what 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 was your background growing up? What was it that took you from there into politics? Well, I was actually born in the United Kingdom. I was born in Wales. Uh, my parents decided to migrate to Australia when I was a four-year-old and my sister was a seven-year-old. So we're part of that great wave of British migration that came under what was called the Assisted Passage Scheme, the so-called £10 POMs, uh, where you could migrate to Australia at a cheap price provided you were a suitable migrant. Um, And so I grew up in Australia in a home where politics was discussed. My father in particular was very interested in current affairs. He was an active trade unionist. Um, but we didn't have a great insight into the inner workings of politics. And, you know, no one we knew was a politician or anything like that. Uh, my father was a psychiatric nurse. My mother was a cook in an aged care facility. And they taught my sister and I we should aim high. And unlike either of them, uh, neither of them finished secondary school, uh, we got to go on to university. So by the time I was at uni, I thought that was a very special place to be. And I first got involved in anything that looked like politics because there were some federal government cutbacks to education funding in my second year at university and I got involved in the protest campaign against them. And that was kind of the start of everything for me, a realisation you could get involved and make a difference. What you accomplished is astonishing. You made history. You went on to become the first female Prime Minister of Australia. When you think about the seed of because there's a lot of ambition that is required to to get from where you were to there. When you think about the seed of that ambition, and what what is it? Even at that point in student politics, were you thinking, I, I could take this thing all, all the way to the top, or is it more incremental than that? Uh, much more incremental, because I didn't grow up with this um, touch with politics You know, if you'd asked me when I was a primary school student or a secondary school student, would you think about going into politics one day? It would have just seemed as remote as saying, do you want to be, you know, an Olympic athlete or an astronaut? You know, ordinary people don't do things like that. Uh, And we're just, you know, an ordinary family. I'm just an ordinary girl. So, of course not. Uh, So it was incremental. You know, the student political experience gave me the sense that I could get involved, I could speak publicly, I could persuade people to a view, I could organise campaigns. And I came out of that increasingly thinking, this is what I want to devote my life to. I've got this taste for public policy now and making a difference. And so the penny dropped in my mid to late 20s that, yes, I would like to go into politics And then in a very Australian Labor Party kind of way, maybe this might be a British Labor Party kind of way as well, uh, between me realising the ambition, yes, I did want to be in politics, and me getting into the federal parliament was the journey of a decade uh, where I was turned down for pre-selection on a number of occasions. And then I ran on the party's ticket for the Senate in what wasn't a good election for Labor and didn't get elected. So... Um, by the time I got there, I'd have to say I think it was sheer stubbornness that was propelling me through. 
And and is there because you know you and Ed will have a very different perspective on this, but from somebody on the outside, basically, I, I consume politics through the commentary out and the news, and then also how it's reflected in pop culture. The the position of the the the, the process of getting to the top is this chess game, this plotting that takes takes years. You know where you want to be, and you sort of figuring out who you need to get on side. How, how much of that is is true? I think it looks um, more uh, rational in hindsight than it does living through it um, on the way up. I mean, um, it it more is, in, well, for me, it was more a journey of um, self-revelation about what you were capable of doing um, rather than this intricate game of I know that I want to get to the top. Um, if you'd said to me when I was going into the federal parliament, you know, what's your ultimate ambition coming into this place? I would have honestly said, look, if I get to be Minister for Education or Minister for Workplace Relations in a federal Labor government, that would be every dream come true, true times 10. Um, and then you get in there and you, you know, you work hard, you learn, you get better at your craft, you benchmark yourself against your colleagues and you start thinking, you know, maybe I can do more of this, maybe I can aspire to uh, a bigger role. And then, you know, you can have those thoughts, but politics is a matrix of skill, ambition, luck, timing, and all of those things have to come together to enable you to come through. And uh, they did come together for me, fortunately. But, you know, it would have been well possible for me to have served my political career at a, another time in Australian history and to sp have spent all of it on uh, the opposition benches. You know, you only need one thing to be slightly different and then the whole thing, um, you know, sort of, in, in some ways falls apart. There are many pathways for people in politics and it's not just about individual skill, it's about all of these intangibles as well. Well, let's talk about the book. It is Women and Leadership. How, how did you and Ngozi come, come to write the book? Where, where did the sort of germ of the idea come from? I got to know my co-author, Ngozi Okonjiri-Wheeler, who is a former finance minister and foreign minister of Nigeria. Um, I first met her actually at the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting, which Australia hosted here in Perth uh, when I was Prime Minister. But we really got to know each other in the years since. I went on to chair the Global Partnership for Education. So this is the major multilateral fund that supports school education in developing countries. And Gozi chairs the Global Vaccine Alliance. Uh, so a very important job right now in our world. And we'd be at all of these international meetings together. We formed a bond, a friendship, and we started talking about what we'd experienced and what we were seeing for women in leadership around the world. And we were frustrated when we continued to see how gendered their experiences were. And then Hillary lost and we said to each other, we've got to try and do something. What are we going to do? And out of that came the idea of putting the book together. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. 
When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. And how did you... What, talk, talk to us about how you chose the uh, the women you spoke to for the book, the leaders, because it, it strikes me that you know something you were very keen to do was make sure they were from across the political spectrum. Yeah, the, the first kind of big decision we made about the book is we wanted it to bring the uh, academic research that there is around women and leadership. We wanted to take that research and test whether women who were leaders thought that the research was right or wrong. Did they feel its power in their own lives? So, so having made that decision, then we thought, which women... And we wanted to get a big global spread, people from very different contexts and cultures, and we wanted to go across the political spectrum, so conservatives and progressives. And do you want to run through uh, the women that you talked to in the book for us? Sure. Uh, So uh, in terms of women who have been or are serving as presidents and prime ministers, uh, we spoke to, in my region of the world, uh, Jacinda Ardern, We spoke to Michelle Bachelet from Chile. We spoke to Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, who was the first woman to lead a nation in Africa. She led Liberia. We spoke to Joyce Banda, uh, who uh, led Malawi. Uh, We spoke to Theresa May, of course, from the United Kingdom, and Erna Solberg, who is Prime Minister of Norway. And then we added two other women who haven't served as presidents or prime ministers, one of them, Hillary Clinton. Uh, So, of course, many of us, including me, very much wish she was serving as president. And the last was uh, Christine Lagarde, who was in French politics but went on to lead the International Monetary Fund. And we thought she'd have a particular perspective because as head of the IMF, uh, she went to to a large range of international meetings where uh, heads of government and heads of state gather. And, and pretty much off the bat in the book, you, you set out some shocking figures on the lack of women in leadership positions. Do you want to – I think, you know, it can be shocking seeing it laid out like that. We, we think we're further on than we are. Do you want to just um, paint a picture for us of where we're up to uh, in terms of gender equality in politics? I'm worried I'm going to uh, depress you, but the statistics do need to be uh, looked straight in the face. Uh, So if we look around the world, 70% of countries have never been led by a woman. And there are only 13 countries that have been led by a woman more than once. And there are only two countries in the world uh, that have had three women leaders. Uh, One of them is Iceland and the other is New Zealand. Jacinda Ardern is the third woman to lead. Uh, So they're pretty bad statistics. 
Now, if all of this was changing really, really quickly and you were seeing a rapid um, rate of growth in the number of women leaders, you might think that this was a short-term or medium-term problem. Uh, but the World Economic Forum tells us that at current rates of change, it'll be almost 100 years before we see equality in political leadership. So if we uh, want to live uh, to see a more gender equal world, uh, then we're going to have to absolutely pick up the pace. And I mean, Julia, there's so much to talk about in this um, in this book. And, and what I really love about it is it's it combines the very interesting anecdotal interviews with the more academic analysis and you then boil it down into eight hypotheses. And I just thought we should maybe talk about some some of them. Um so this is perhaps in a way the most the most obvious, but that doesn't make it any less important. This question of appearance and women leaders being scrutinized so much more for their appearance than men. Talk talk a little bit about about this, what what you went into the book thinking, what you found as you talked to the eight leaders and looked at the academic research? Yeah, on this uh, question of appearance, at one level, everybody would say, yes, of course, you know, women do get um, much more scrutiny on their appearance. That's true um, in real life, whether you're, you know, walking down the street, going to the local shop, and it's also true in politics. And we tried to delve a layer beneath that. So there's the, you know, Women are still unusual on the political stage, so people look at what they're wearing. Uh, there's no standard uniform for women the way there is for men, wearing a suit and tie and shirt, um, or depending on context, traditional dress like Prime Minister Modi wears a, an Indian uh, style of garb. Um, but then we wanted to go a little bit deeper and say, and do people make more judgment calls about women? Do they think what they're wearing and how they appear says something about character? And we couldn't absolutely answer this with precision, but I did have a fascinating conversation with Theresa May. And if you look at the current Prime Minister in the UK, Prime Minister Johnson, you know, he's um, well known uh, for a uh, you know, slightly uh, eccentric, <laughs> you know, uh, appearance. He uh, clearly isn't in possession of a hairbrush, um, and uh, all all of this is all of this is received, you know, as a kind of. Um, I, I think it's received generally as a sort Good of old eccentric- Boris. Yeah. And eccentricity, something yeah. you know, basically sort of endearing about yeah. him, individual and endearing. And we uh, talked to Theresa May about whether a woman who looked like she didn't own a hairbrush and routinely had, you know, bits of a camisole coming untucked or something, um, how would she be received? And Theresa, you know, thought about it and ultimately said, you know, she thought a woman like who, who appeared like that um, may even have had difficulty being pre-selected um, by the Tories, you know. Uh, so I think I think that's quite telling. And, and what's quite shocking is that you quote research saying the media focused more on Theresa May's appearance than on Mrs Thatcher's appearance when she was Prime Minister. I mean, does that mean it's getting worse? 
yeah, a wonderful uh, young Australian researcher called Blair Williams uh, did a comparison of the media coverage of Prime Minister Thatcher in the two weeks after she became Prime Minister back in 1979 versus the two first two weeks for Theresa May and found the coverage is more gendered now. Now, I, I don't think that that is telling us that we've gone absolutely backwards on gender standards. I think it's telling us that there's a loss of politeness and reserve in the modern media. Yeah. So. You know, they will say things now that they wouldn't have out of a sense of decorum when Margaret Thatcher was Prime Minister. Yes. For example, that photograph of uh, Theresa May uh, speaking to uh, to the Scottish leader, to Nicola Sturgeon, and they've got their legs, yeah. you know, they're both wearing skirts and they've got their legs crossed and the headline, you know, don't worry about Brexit, who, who won legs it, you know, who's yeah. basically got the better legs. Uh, I don't think anybody would have put that in the newspaper in 1979. Appearance is merely one element of the the challenges that uh, that 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 the the, the the harsher standards that women leaders are judged by. Talk to us about shrill or soft and and the style kind of kind of question. Yeah, we looked at the academic research about how people view women leaders, and we recount some of it in a chapter called Sh uh, Shrill or Soft, as you say, but we've got another chapter where we push it out and leave it a little bit further entitled She's a Bit of a Bitch. Um, and we based all of that on um, research which shows that because we still, all of us, have gender stereotypes whispering in the back of our brains, we've still got a little voice that tells us to expect men to be ambitious, self-seeking, commanding, you know, that style of leader. And if we see a man doing that, it accords with our stereotype, so that's fine. If we see a woman doing that, we find it disturbing, even offensive, because it offends against our stereotype that women are nurturing, empathetic, put the needs of others in front of the needs of self. Um, and this plays out in the conclusion that uh, a woman who is like that is, you know, not likeable, not nice, prickly, hard to deal with, and basically the sort of leader that as a voter you'd be unlikely to support. And when you think about Hillary Clinton's campaign, ultimately failed campaign, she went into that with people identifying that her single biggest problem was that people didn't think she was likeable. And whilst you never get to run the control test in politics and you never get to um, say if a man had exactly Hillary Clinton's past, how would he, would he have been perceived? Obviously, you can't do that. But I imagine a male Secretary of State, even with the emails, even with the issues around Benghazi and the security of the US Embassy, people might be saying about that man, look, I'm, I'm worried about emails or Benghazi. I'm worried about these on questions of competence. But I don't think people would have been wandering around saying, you know, the problem with this bloke is he's not very likeable. Yeah. I think that that's about gender. And and talking from your own experience and maybe the leaders you interviewed, how do women leaders navigate this this conundrum? How can they navigate this conundrum? Each of them intuitively felt that there was a pathway they had to walk 
where they appeared strong enough. So people thought that they had what it takes to lead, but they also needed to appear empathetic. And they sort of intuitively knew if they fell one side or the other, you know, too too strong or too caring, that that would be a problem, that people would think, "Mm, too strong, not likeable, too caring, she's too much of a softie to lead the nation. Um, And all of them talked, and this is, you know, across very different cultures and contexts, all of them talked about self-limiting some behaviours because they were conscious of this, like second-guessing, you know, what would happen if they cried, uh, for example. What would happen if a man cried, do you think? A male leader. I think, be- I think because it's against stereotype, I actually think it can be uh, received uh, received well. Uh, in I think it depends a bit what you're uh, crying about. Uh, but yeah. in politics, when I've seen men moved to tears uh, because of you know um, dreadful natural disasters, loss of life. Uh, They're trying to convey that news to their nation and they've been moved to tears. People have received that as an outpouring of uh, empathy that was appropriate to the occasion. Um, I I felt this in in my own experience, you know, mostly in Australian politics, not always, but mostly in Australian politics in, um, you know, contemporary times, and by that I mean the last sort of 30-odd years, uh, when uh, male prime ministers have left the prime ministership, they've lost a leadership ballot or they've lost an election, uh, they've uh, shed a tear. Uh, When that happened to me, I was... 100% 100% determined not to uh, because I really did think there would be categories of people that said to themselves, I knew it, I knew it, that I knew these women wow. weren't up to it, I knew they couldn't wow. take it. Uh, so I steeled myself to not do it. And I don't recall there being a strong adverse reaction when any of the men did it. Now, Talk to us about the issue, um, and this is something that came up in Theresa May's campaign to be leader, about women uh, as as mothers or not being mothers. And I think there's a Hillary story in, about Hillary saying that, which I was really st- stuck with me, where she says that I think somebody wrote to her saying she was advised that if you're a man, uh, a father, it's good to have pictures of you you and your kids in the office because you'll be seen as a nice guy. Whereas if you're a woman, uh, a mother, it's better not to have the pictures of your kids because you'll be thought to be, you know, you'll be spending all your time thinking about your kids and not concentrating on your work. How does this play out with women leaders? Yeah, Hillary uh, did uh, tell that story uh, in, in the book and it's a story right from uh, back when she was a, uh, a young emerging lawyer and she remembered noting that advice which was given in a sort of agony aunt column in the in the newspapers uh and we we tried to explore what does it mean uh if women do and don't have children as leaders and basically uh we we came to this proposition Ngozi and I with different experiences I don't have children Ngozi does 
but we had concluded, both of us, that there was basically no right answer for a woman in politics to the question, do you have children? Because if you say no, then people think, oh, you don't really get what family life is about. You don't really understand. Um, and all of those images of self-seeking, you know, career girl all come to the fore. Um, whereas if you say, I do have children, then the next question is sort of, well, how, how are you going to manage this? I mean, how are you going to end up going to Canberra or going to Westminster? I mean, you know, who's going to be looking after the kids? And these are questions that men in politics, even with young children, don't get asked because people are just assuming that there's someone at home who's making it all happen for them. Um, so we did explore that and we explored how the women balanced it. Most particularly, we looked at the experiences of Jacinda Ardern, who is the second leader after Benazir Bhutto to have a child in office. But we then tried to look at my experiences versus Theresa May. Uh, Theresa May doesn't have children. She and her husband would have very much liked to, but they were unable to. And that was basically, in her view, treated very respectfully by people. But, of course, there was the incident when she was campaigning for leadership of the Tory party when it was raised by a female opponent to suggest that she didn't really have as much of a stake in the future because she didn't have children. Now, fortunately, um, that statement was viewed as so abhorrent that um, it was a trigger point uh, for that candidate against Theresa to leave the race. I compared that with my experiences. I don't have children by choice. And that did become a thing in Australian politics. There was a crazy uh, media flurry about me being photographed in my kitchen and not having fruit in my fruit bowl. Uh, what sort of woman, what sort of human being doesn't have fruit in their fruit, fruit bowl? How can one possibly understand the needs of a nation if one is unable to buy fruit? Um, on and on it goes. Uh, and no amount of saying, it's not a fruit bowl, it's a decorative bowl. It looks better <laughs> if you can see the bottom. Ever fix that. Uh, and I was uh, chided by a Conservative senator for being deliberately barren, um, something that he ultimately had to apologise for, but only very begrudgingly after a, a few days had gone by. I mean, it's very striking, just as you're talking, that Boris Johnson has just had a child and nobody is saying, well, how can Boris Johnson you know, do his job and you know, have a new baby? You know, I mean, it's like literally the question is not even asked. Whereas the minute Jacinda had her baby, it was the only question that was asked, I guess. Yes, that's right. And we looked back in British politics because, of course, Tony Blair had a baby when he was Prime Minister. Uh, David Cameron uh, had a baby when he was Prime Minister. And uh, we did try and uh, look to see... Uh, whether there was any questioning of them. Um, and from the media at the time, there was just, you know, a nice sense of, you know, community interest, you know, that's a, it's a nice, nice, always a nice thing to see a new baby in the world. So people were full of hearty congratulations, but no sense whatsoever that they would somehow be stopped from being able to do their roles as Prime Minister. G given all the challenges, and you talk about them in such a compelling way that that female leaders face L let me ask you a sort of slightly different question because it's come up during covid 
and, and there's been a number of articles that I've seen that say, you know, it's not a coincidence that the countries that have handled this best have female leaders. And I know that there's, you know, that's a sort of, that's just a kind of anecdotal thought. But it just takes me to a more general question, which is, do you think there is a different way that women leaders lead? Or is that in itself a, a kind of gender stereotype? I am not a believer that men and women inherently have different leadership styles. You know, we we actually look at uh, male and female brains in the book and end up concluding that a lot of this, you know, men are from Mars, women are from Venus kind of stuff is neurosexism, not neuroscience. Sure. But women and men are socialised differently uh, and women in particular receive all of the signals that if they aren't... Um, you know, communitarian enough if they aren't looking after others, if they aren't focusing on the team, uh, then that's viewed as unacceptable. And then women leaders are conscious of this narrow pathway of strength and empathy. And so I think by the time you factor all of that in, it's no surprise that the women that we see leading tend to be women who are leading in that strong empathetic style and I do think that's a style that people have responded to well during the pandemic because they want to know that the person leading their nation has got this that they are you know tough enough to bring the nation through but they also want to see that the leader gets it in the sense of gets how um, anxious stressed confused um, you know, very frustrated, wondering about the future communities are. So they want to see that warmth as well. Which which brings us on to, I guess, the question of women as role models. Um, talk to me about balancing the importance of just seeing a, a, a woman in a leadership position, you know, just that inherently having value as a role model versus uh, a, a woman in that position who also does a lot for other women. And I, I suppose Margaret Thatcher uh, is, is the example that springs to mind, that it was very important, I think, for so many young women and girls to see a woman in a position as prime minister. But she, she's not somebody who really prioritised women's issues. I I remember um you know I I remember when Margaret Thatcher was elected and it made an impression on me I I'm, you know I was um uh, in in 1979 I would have been uh, 18 years old and it made an impression on me that there was a woman running a country as important as the United Kingdom and it made an impression on me, even though I had zero sense of attachment to her politics. I mean, you know, with my father coming from South Wales, you can imagine uh, the adjectives that went in front of the noun Thatcher <laughs> in my household, um, and they aren't for repetition on a podcast. Um, so, oh, go on. But it, oh, go on. Oh, <laughs> Then this will come out beep, 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 <laughs> um, and I don't think I don't think we want that. Um, so, but but just the sheer role modelling that wow, you know, like a woman can be prime minister. Like I haven't seen that before. So I think it does matter. But you know, role modelling is important. But we dig a bit deeper in the book and we talk about how role models can be most impactful and. 
how girls need to not only see a woman, but it makes the biggest impression if they see a woman who shares characteristics with them. So, you know, to take a very clear example, uh, if a young black girl constantly sees uh, white women, then the message she might get is not that this is a pathway open to her, uh, it's a pathway open to women who are not like her. And then we also talk about um, how to be the best role model, you've got to steer a line between not coming across as superwoman but not um, only putting the barriers that you face. There are joys and delights in leadership. It is absolutely worth aiming and going for, uh, but uh, there will still be some gendered bits and not insult women's intelligence by refusing to talk through them. And given that you talk to women across so many different countries and cultures, how universal do you think the challenges faced by women in leadership are? It is remarkable to me and is one thing that I really learned in the book that uh, they these challenges are far more similar than I would have thought at the start. Um, I, I'd never fallen for, um, you know, the, the slick argument that gets put in countries like Australia and the UK and you... you you would have all heard it, where uh, feminists uh, end up having a retort given to them of, "Oh, I don't, I don't know what you know you're complaining about here in Australia or the UK. I mean, you know, you you basically get it easy. I mean, try actually doing uh, life where somewhere where it's tough, where girls don't get to school, where there's child marriage and that kind of stuff. So I'd, I'd never fallen for any of that, and I don't think that we should." But I did expect culture and context to mean more differences than we saw. We saw more similarities on how sexism plays itself out. The book also tries to say what can we do about the absence of uh, the the under the massive underrepresentation of female leadership, and and you also give some advice for what men should be doing as allies in this struggle. Talk, talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, we do conclude the book with uh, what we entitle the standout lessons and there are some there for uh, women who are aspiring to leadership, whether that be in politics or in any other walk of life, and we hope they find them useful. But we've got a very specific message for men as well, uh, which is that men can make a huge, indeed disproportionate difference uh, to the struggle for gender equality. The research very clearly shows that if a man points to sexism as a problem, that he will be listened to, he will be seen to be raising that not because it's in his personal interest, but because it's genuinely a problem. And not only will he be listened to, a man in a corporate environment that gets a reputation for being the one who is prepared to do that is seen as having leadership qualities and the ability to put the interests of others first. And uh, that's been shown to lead to promotions and the like. So for men, this is all upside. A gender equal world would be a better place to live and you can actually be rewarded for being a guy who does the right thing. I have a last question, which is um, the title of the podcast is Reasons to be Cheerful. 
Um, and this, this shouldn't be sugar-coated. But give us a picture of the sort of what you what the progress you think you've seen during your political career and whether that gives you hope looking back on my life and my political career i do see many reasons for hope that we're going to create a better world and that we can bring uh, new tools and new ways of working to the task um you know across my lifetime whether it's politics whether it's business we've seen more women come through uh, we've seen more understanding develop of the barriers in women's way. And I actually think we've got far greater community consensus now that those barriers need to be cleared. So all of those things coming together uh, gives me huge optimism about the future. This is a task we can get done. You know, my own lifetime has seen so much change. If change has been possible as I've lived through these years, then I'm very, very certain that if we've got the will, then we can find the way to accelerate the rate of change. Well, look, Julia Gillard, um, the book is Women in Leadership, Real Lives, Real Lessons. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. So what did you think? Well, firstly, I thought it was a brilliant conversation. She is so compelling to talk to. Yeah, definitely. It's it. It was one of those conversations as well where you have to uh, you have to check your male privilege a little bit because you, your assumption is things just get better. And one of the stark facts for me was when they did the analysis of the coverage of Theresa May and her appearance that it it was actually worse for her than it was for. Margaret Thatcher in in the eighties, and so you know, there's there's an indication that perhaps things you know aren't necessarily getting better in the way that we all think they are. I think you're right. I mean, you know, in a sense, there's the sort of you know stark facts that we referred to at the beginning on representation, how many female leaders there've been, and then there's the all of the implicit and explicit sexism and all that. I was. It's funny, I thought of this uh, this week because uh, the Shadow Cabinet is now meeting again in person and we meet in a committee room in the House of Commons. And at one point in the meeting, I sort of gazed around the walls and I realised that there were probably half a dozen paintings on the walls, all of them of men. Of course, yeah. Groups of men, men on their own, you know. And it's sort of, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, that that's just a sort of, well, it's always been like that. Uh, this is a sort of historical thing, but that's just a subtle example of of the kind of assumptions that we all live with. And in a way, that's just one very you know particular example. But there's lots of those examples. Do you know what I mean? Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. Well. We're in the outro. I think we should underline the fact that if people have um, thoughts on what they've heard from Julia Gillard, ideas for future episodes, we're really um, beginning the autumn term, very keen to hear good ideas from around the world, from Britain, that we should be featuring issues that need solutions. Uh, they sh- then people should email us. They can find they can find the way to do that by going to our uh, website, cheerfulpodcast.com. 
You can also sign up for our brilliant newsletter there. You get the the extra bonus bits, don't you? A lot, lot of detail. Lot of, if you want to do, I think they call it a deep dive. Yeah, but we'd, we'd love to hear from you. And we read every email, don't we? We do. Even the nasty ones. Particularly the nasty ones. But there aren't that many nasty ones. No, but we really we really obsess about them. And can, can we also just talk about things we obsess about, uh, which is lots of things. We, we, people need to review and rate us, don't they? Five stars, please, on your platform. Push us up the... I mean, you know, algorithms are in the news. Uh, I'd say the podcast charts are a pretty mutant algorithm, but, you know, people should sort of, you know, push us up the... What's my jigs? Top of the pops. Top of the pops. I've got um, I've got a little bit of news for you. Oh, My son, in the last couple of weeks, has become obsessed with octonauts. Now, do you know why I mentioned yeah, this? Yes, you'd, because my children were obsessed with octonauts. When I first met you, when I interviewed yeah. you in the run-up to 2015, I finished with a softball question about your kids and policies, and you closed it down with, I think they're more interested in, in the octonauts, and here we are. Full circle, all these years later, my son's got into them too. Captain Barnacles. Yeah. Captain Barnacles, sorry, quasi... Uh, tunip and the Vegemals. Uh, Is there a penguin? Peng- Peso the penguin. I'm struggling with the other. I think ones. there might be one called Tweak. Or does that sound right? Yes, Tweak. If they ever want us to go on a podcaster's edition of Pointless Celebrities, Ed's really good at naming octonauts. Uh, I want to mention something which is not to do with the octonauts. My my friend, if that's not a name drop, um, Ronnie O'Sullivan won the World Championships and I was so delighted for him. Um, In some ways, it's it's like you have won the World Championships vicariously. Yeah, yeah that's what I felt. Um, he was incredibly nice to me during the election. He came and canvassed with me, uh, came and did some stuff uh, and canvassed. Um, and he's a, he's a top bloke. And uh, yeah, he, he I, I, to be honest, I find it incredibly nerve wracking watching him. So I, I kind of I just find it too nail biting to watch him. But I, but honestly, I'm really he, he he sort of really you know he, he well it's been I think seven years since he last won and it's been a big thing for him. So um, I'm I'm really pleased. Is there anything else to be said? I, th- I think that's everything, isn't it? Yeah. Looking forward to uh, to the September autumn and beyond. I'd like to thank Julia Gillard for joining us. She's obviously not only the former Prime Minister of Australia and has written this book, she's also a podcaster, uh, and her podcast is called... A Podcast of One's Own. So look out for that. Emma Caution produces our podcast, and I should say uh, a belated happy birthday to Emma. She had a big one while we were uh, away for the summer, one of the ones ending with a zero. So many happy returns belatedly to our beloved producer, uh, Joel Pearce does all the research with uh, backup from Fanula DC Zoe Gelber and Joe Kenyon Gail Lofthouse is our announcer James Deacon made our ideas. the music was composed by Ed Seed and our artwork was designed by Henry Cole he's been Jeff Lloyd he's been Ed Miliband and these have been Reasons to be Cheerful Small details are big surfaces Tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.